You may be seated. And I would invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. This morning, as we continue to work through this letter to the Hebrews, we come now to Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 17, which again, if you are using the blue Bibles, it is on page 1009. But before we hear God's word to us this morning from Hebrews 12, let us call upon our God once again in prayer. Almighty Father, we come before you once again desperate to hear you speak. For your word is our life, it is our strength, it is our hope. It is our peace and joy. So we ask that as we hear your word now, you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. That you would strengthen us to live by faith. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work now to illuminate your word that we might have understanding that we might have faith to believe and trust in Christ, and that we might have great love for you and for one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. Strive. For peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. In the first half of chapter 12, the author of Hebrews taught us how to categorize and thereby understand our entire Christian experience. And that category is discipline. As a Christian, every detail and moment of your life falls within the category of discipline. But as we learned that word does not exclusively or even primarily refer to punishment as it refers to child training, child rearing, child maturing. So the Christian's experience is a child's experience. The experience of sons and daughters whose father loves them and is raising them for their maximal well-being. So you ought to understand 
everything you experience as a Christian as the experience of God's loving discipline in your life. It is the experience, whether it is positive or negative, of God working for you as your loving Father to produce something good within you. He's not treating you as enemies, but as children. He's not rejecting you. He is receiving you. For God is a loving Father who disciplines his children, as all good fathers do, for their good. And what is that good? Well, it is his grace. God works by grace for you to produce grace in you that you may share in his holiness, as it says back in verse 10, that you may bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness, as it says in verse 11. God is treating you as sons to make you like his one and only son, that you may know his love, his joy, his peace, his holiness, and his fellowship as Jesus himself knows these things. Christian experience is the experience of the Heavenly Father's grace-producing discipline, producing the grace of peace and of purity. So what do we do? Well, the author begins to tell us in verses 12 and 13, we lift our drooping hands, we strengthen our weak knees, we make straight paths for our feet. In other words, we take hold of this knowledge, of this understanding, and we find strength and healing to keep running by faith. But as we've learned in Hebrews, we are not running aimlessly and without any purpose. We are running toward a goal. We are running toward a finish line. We are running toward a prize. We are running to something and for something, which again is God's grace. It is his rest, his salvation, his holiness, his peace. That's our inheritance. You see this in verses 14 and 15, that we are running to and for something, as he says, strive or pursue peace. Strive for holiness. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. In other words, in the first half of chapter 12, we are being told what God is working for. Now we're being told what we are working for. And guess what? It is the exact same reality. God is producing his grace in you, and you are pursuing that grace. So you are only called to pursue what God is producing. I'm therefore going to consider three things with you this morning. Number one, this command to pursue God's grace. Number two, the obstacle to your pursuit, which is called the root of bitterness. And number three, the negative example of this pursuit, which is Esau, 
But as I consider these three things, I will show you that this individual pursuit of God's grace is actually one of the primary ways that you protect not only yourself, but the entire church. And so this command, along with all of the commands we have encountered in Hebrews, not only has an individual aspect, it has a corporate element. These commands keep coming in the context of community. Not just you and Jesus, but us and Jesus. So you are to pursue God's grace within you in order to protect the church around you. That's the big idea I'm working towards. But first is the command, which is, again, to pursue God's grace. You are pursuing only what God himself is producing. Now, why do I say it this way? Because verses 10 and 11 are clear that God's discipline is purposeful. He is working to produce something good in you and for you, which is said to be your holiness and the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is what God is doing. So God's discipline is producing peace and purity, which is a succinct summary of the salvation the author has been describing throughout his letter. Salvation is peace. It is reconciliation with God. It is entering his rest, as chapter 4 emphasizes. But this objective peace with God requires an objective purity. Purity and holiness are interchangeable in Hebrews. They refer to the same reality. So to be pure, to be holy, is to be cleansed from all of your sin and to be counted as perfectly righteous before God. So you need to understand that peace and Purity or holiness are first objective realities you are striving after. But these are objective realities that God has created. So you have peace with God, enjoying his eternal life, rest, and loving fellowship when you have been purified from sin and counted as righteous, as a law keeper instead of as a law breaker. But how are these objective realities obtained? Well, only by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The whole point of Hebrews has been that Jesus Christ is the exalted Son, the sovereign King, the faithful High Priest, and the sufficient sacrifice for sin, who has accomplished your salvation by purifying you of all your sin as he shed his blood upon the cross. And thereby he has purchased peace with God so that you may enter into his eternal rest and receive the immeasurable glory of your inheritance. Jesus 
is the guarantor of this new and better covenant. It is his blood that purifies your evil conscience from dead works once and for all. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the message of Hebrews has been clear. Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it all. Which is why I say you are you are pursuing what God has produced. He has objectively, once for all, accomplished your salvation in Jesus Christ. He has produced the peace you desire, and he has produced the purity you require. And yet, the letter of Hebrews is clear, God is still applying this to you. He is still working it out in you. Peace and purity are objective realities that are subjectively applied over time. So you must grow in peace, in purity, in grace, in holiness, in conformity to Christ. Which is why you are commanded to strive after it, to pursue it. The author says in verse 14, strive, pursue, run after, run after peace, run after holiness. But verse 15 is the same command, just in negative form. When he says, strive after peace, strive after holiness, and then he says, make sure you don't fail to obtain what? Grace. Which again tells you this peace, this purity that you are striving after does not now fall within the category of your workspace righteousness. You are striving after grace. Don't fail to obtain grace. So you are only commanded to pursue what God has already freely given you in Christ, not what he is withholding from you until you earn it, through your pursuit. Now, I've preached many times on the pursuit of holiness, so I'm going to take a few moments here to specifically consider how you pursue peace. For I've argued that peace is First, the objective peace and reconciliation you have with God, and yet you'll notice in verse 14 that the author says, strive for peace with everyone. Meaning here, everyone in the community of faith. So the author's focus is more on this horizontal peace that we have with one another in the church. And yet, of course, peace with God and peace with one another are never separated. You cannot have Christian peace with one another if you're not a Christian. And that means you must first have peace with God if you're to have any peace in the church. And yet, you do not have peace with God if you do not have peace with the church. For the church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head. How could you possibly have peace with Christ if you do not have peace with his body? Therefore, the gospel means that the church objectively has peace within her. The cross has 
made peace, not only between you and God, but between you and your fellow Christians. But we don't always experience this peace in the church, do we? We have conflicts. We have arguments. We don't always agree on right doctrine and right practice. No matter how well I argue, some of you still don't think we should baptize covenant children. And I still love you. We offend one another. We harm one another. I've often said it is much easier to join a church than it is to stay in a church. Just like it's much easier to get married than it is to stay married. Why? Well, when you first join a church, like when you first get married, everything seems pretty wonderful and exciting. All you see is the beauty. The affections run high. But over time, reality inevitably sets in. And the truth is that even though you have been perfected in Christ, we are all still being perfected. The river of sin still flows in every Christian heart. Yes, the current is slowly slowing. The river is slowly drying up by God's grace, but it will keep flowing to some degree until you die or Christ returns. So you see, the only kind of Christian that you can have community with, just like the only kind of spouse you can ever have, is one who still needs as much grace as you do and who still struggles with sin as much as you do. The very fact the author says that we must strive for peace reveals he thinks this is hard and it doesn't come naturally or easily. So very quickly, how can you strive with peace with one another? I'm just going to really list six ways without giving much explanation, but here are just six ways that came to mind. Number one, you strive for peace with everyone as you strive to overlook offenses. We live in a society that craves to be offended. We just can't wait for an opportunity to be a victim and then let everyone else know how victimized we are. We ought not to be those kinds of people. Yes, there are absolutely times when we are sinned against and we actually need to confront those who have sinned against us. But my advice is that we do that when one of two things are true. Either we are doing that out of a desire to protect the one who is in sin because they, they don't see it. And so we, we, we want to be a means of, of helping them see their sin, that they might find forgiveness. Or we may need to confront somebody to protect ourselves when no matter how much we are trying, we, we're just recognizing that, that bitterness and anger is welling up and poisoning our heart. And so we, we need to confront this so that we don't just let bitterness and anger kill our soul. But as much as possible, let the little things go. 
a lot of times people aren't actually trying to offend you. We just can be very foolish sometimes in how we speak and act. So strive as much as possible to overlook offenses. Number two, be disciplined to confess your own sin daily. Because as you are confessing your sin, it will guard you from minimizing your offenses against God and exaggerating everyone else's offenses against you, which is what breeds an unforgiving spirit. When we think, you know, my sin against God really isn't all that bad, but everybody's sin against me, now that's a big deal. Confessing sin keeps your sin your main concern. Three, pray for others regularly in the church. Maybe especially those you don't like very much. For the more that you are praying for others, your heart will be drawn to them. You will want to love and care for them as God does. Because in praying for others, you're recognizing that God loves and cares for them. Number four, serve others in the church. When you are serving one another, this again draws you to them to be compassionate toward them. Number five, strive for biblical and theological fidelity in your own life because the peace of the church does depend on the purity of her doctrine. And I would add to this that as you're by God's grace, seeking to believe as best you can the truth of the scriptures, strive to keep the main thing the main thing. Because inevitably, what happens to us sometimes is we, we find these other points of doctrine which are important. I don't think anyone can ever accuse me of thinking that there's points of doctrine that don't matter. I, I care a lot about precision in every point of doctrine. And yet, sometimes we get hobby horse doctrines. And all of a sudden, this has become the most important theological revelation in Scripture. And when that happens, and it's no longer Christ crucified, we inevitably, inevitably again become angry, bitter people because not everyone cares about it as much as we do. And not everybody agrees with us on, on this point. And when that happens, either we leave the church or we become a source of division within the church. Sometimes we lose the gospel by misordering the gospel. So keep the main thing the main thing. And number six, pursue your own moral purity. Be more concerned about your sanctification than you are about everyone else's, even though you ought to be concerned about the sanctification of those you love. And so you should see that this command to strive for peace with everyone, therefore, falls within the context of community. Strive for peace, not just with God, but with everyone, just like we saw back in chapter 3. When the author exhorted us, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So there's the individualistic emphasis. You take care of about your own heart. 
But then he goes on to say, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So guarding our hearts has something to do with guarding everybody's hearts. Taking care of your doctrinal and moral peace and purity impacts not only you, it impacts the entire community, which is again clear in our verses. For you notice in verse 15, it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The problem isn't just you becoming defiled. The problem here is that many might become defiled. So when it comes to your personal holiness, the protection of the entire community is at stake. If you let a root of bitterness grow in your heart, it will cause trouble and defile many. And so here is the obstacle to our pursuit. It is called the root of bitterness. Now, what is that? Well, if you're reading along in the ESV, you may have noticed that root of bitterness is in quotation marks because the author is referring to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18. So if, if you want to turn back to Deuteronomy 29, I'm going to read verses 18 through 20 so we have some context. In Deuteronomy 29, Moses is renewing the covenant with Israel before they're going to go into the promised land. He has reiterated the law and he has restated the blessings for obedience as well as the curses for disobedience. But as Israel renews the covenant and pledges fidelity to it, Moses warns, beginning in verse 18, beware lest there be among you a man or a woman, or clan, or tribe, whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. In the Greek translation of that, it says a root of bitterness. But beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this, this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. So you see, Moses is saying, one person, one clan, one tribe walks away. This could sweep away a whole lot more. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. The root of bitterness is therefore just another way of describing what the author has been warning against throughout Hebrews. It's what we heard in chapter 3. It's an unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. It's letting 
Sin's roots grow in the garden of your soul, which will eventually produce plants that will produce not healthy, life-giving fruit, but bitter, poisonous fruit. So Deuteronomy 29 makes clear this is a, yet another way the author is warning against apostasy, against rejecting the covenant, abandoning faith and obedience, and forsaking God. But again, you notice that the warning is not only that apostasy is deadly for the apostate, it is potentially dangerous and deadly for the entire community. Kids, think of it like this. Imagine that your parents let you go into the backyard and you get to plant all kinds of fruit trees. You get to plant apple trees and orange trees and peach trees. And we'll just pretend like they would all thrive and flourish in a Michigan climate. So every day, once these trees have, have grown and they're producing this wonderful fruit, you get to go out and eat fresh fruit every day, eating apples and oranges and peaches. Now, if these are healthy trees bearing healthy fruit, then as you eat from these trees, your health will be promoted. But imagine if these trees are producing poisonous fruit. And you don't realize it. You're going out every day. You're plucking that apple and you're eating it. Well, eventually you will get sick and perhaps die. Well, this is how it is in the church. We are like a field of trees. And when we gather together, when we teach each other God's word. We counsel one another. We pray with one another. We serve with one another. We worship God together. We just interact with one another. It's like going out into that field every day and we're just, we're plucking fruit. And if we are a bunch of healthy trees, there is no greater blessing than to be in Christian community. That others are helping sustain your life each and every day. But what about when some of those trees start bearing poisonous fruit? Well, then as you interact and as you speak with them and worship with them, that's not only killing them, it will start to harm you. Do you see why I say that pursuing God's grace within you is one of the ways that you are protecting the church around you? For sin naturally spreads. It's contagious. So apostasy will not only kill you, it can kill those around you. And so this root of bitterness, or this root that produces bitter fruit, is anything that draws you away from the Lord. It could be bad theology, which is why you, you need to be drinking from sound biblical teaching and, and preaching. It may be sinful pleasure. It just may be general worldliness. For we're easily tempted, as Moses warned the Israelites against, of following after the gods of this world. Now, true, we, we aren't making little statues of gold and silver and stone, but we are no less idolatrous than those primitive peoples that made physical idols. 
And we worship the gods of comfort and popularity, of autonomy, of safety, sex, and security, of wealth and unconditional affirmation. Worldliness will produce bitter fruit. When you are not just in the world, but you are becoming of the world, when you start to think like the world and love like the world and prioritize like the world and rest like the world and schedule like the world. It's like we've been seen in the book of Judges on Sunday evening. Well, the two of you who come have been seen in the book of Judges on Sunday evening, how the Israelites were supposed to separate from the Canaanites, and yet they just started to look a whole lot more like the Canaanites. If we let the root of bitterness grow in us, we will soon look like the world and live like the world. Loving what the world loves, and this will not only defile and damage you, this will damage and defile those that you least claim to love, your spouse, your children, your brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the clearest examples of what happens when this bitter root is left to grow is in Esau. You, you see the progression in verses 15 and 16. The author says, see to it, and then he gives three negatives. See to it that no one fails to obtain grace, that no root of bitterness springs up, that no one is sexually immoral and unholy like Esau. I think this is just three ways of describing apostasy, but it shows you that apostasy comes in a progression. First is just the willful neglect of obtaining grace. You're just not soaking in the grace that God has given you from his word, from prayer, from corporate worship, the sacraments, from Christian fellowship. You just then create space in your soul. And then the root of bitterness has every opportunity to grow. Remember what we heard from Ephesians 4 earlier this morning where Paul says, don't give an opportunity to the devil. Well, when you just leave your soul wide open because you're not obtaining that grace that God has given you, there is all kinds of room for worldliness to grow. And then you become like Esau. One of the great negative examples of apostasy. For in Genesis chapter 25, you read of the story when Esau was really hungry. Kids, have you ever been really hungry? What do you usually say? Be honest. What do you usually say when you're really hungry? I will tell you what my kids always say to me when they are really hungry. They do not come to me and say, you know, Father, I am, I am feeling a little bit of hunger. May I have a morsel to eat? They immediately come with, I'm starving and I'm going to die right now if you don't give me food. That's how Esau felt on this particular day. Esau was the older twin brother of Jacob. And so he comes home one day and he is starving to death. And his brother Jacob is cooking some stew. So Esau asks, may I have some of this stew? And Jacob is not the most loving brother. And Jacob wants something too. 
See, the fact that Esau is the firstborn means his birthright is better than Jacob's. And so when their parents die, Esau is going to get more money and property than Jacob is. So Jacob says, sure, brother Esau, I'll give you this stew. I just want your future inheritance. And you want to know the craziest part of the story? Esau agrees to this deal. As the author of Hebrews stresses, for a single meal, not even a lifetime supply of Chick-fil-A sandwiches, just one sandwich, Esau gives away everything. And it's not just material wealth that Esau gives away. For you see later in Genesis that Esau will lose his place within the Abrahamic covenant. Jacob's going to trick him out of that too. He forsakes eternal covenant blessings for a bowl of stew. Why? Because he has become so worldly that this hang of hunger dominates everything for him. Esau is therefore an example of what Deuteronomy 29 warns about. For this description of Esau as sexually immoral and unholy, the, these words refer to he's an idolater and he has become utterly worldly and he has broken the covenant. And Deuteronomy 29 warns that when someone utterly rejects the covenant in this way and says, I don't want anything to do with this, who says, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. It says the Lord will not forgive him, but instead the covenant curses will come upon him. And that is what happens to Esau. It says, for you know that afterward, here in verse 17, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That verse is terrifying. But what does it mean? Essentially, it doesn't mean anything different than the author of Hebrews has already taught us, which is that there is no salvation for those who fully and finally reject Christ and the covenant of grace. Why? Because there's one way of salvation. That is Jesus Christ and the new covenant. And if you say no to that, what other possibility of salvation remains? There isn't one. So this verse does not mean there is a number limit on how many times you can repent and be forgiven. As if, if okay, I, I've now sinned for the 80th million time, and now I'm coming to the Lord in repentance saying, I see my sin, I have sinned against you, God, I hate my sin, please forgive me in Jesus Christ. And he says, sorry, 80 million was the limit, and I will not forgive you anymore. That is not what this verse is describing. When it says that Esau was seeking something with tears, the it doesn't refer to the repentance. The it refers to the blessing. 
There is no indication in Genesis or in Hebrews that Esau was ever convicted of sin. What it tells you is that at one point Esau regretted what he did because he now lost his birthright. And he realized that was a really foolish decision. But what he wanted back was those blessings, not reconciliation with the God of blessing. So there's no opportunity for repentance, it says. Not that he repented, but that there was no opportunity. Why? Because repentance is one of the blessings that comes with the covenant. That is a spirit-wrought work within you. So do not hear Esau repented and God rejected Esau. Here, Esau regretted losing some earthly blessings and there was no more opportunity for him. That's what the author of Hebrews is warning us against. You cannot have covenant blessings when you reject the God of the covenant. This is the foolishness of saying, I am safe and God's going to be merciful and gracious to me, though I just keep going my own way. You must accept the terms of the covenant. And what are those terms? You must have faith in Jesus Christ. And you must live by faith in Jesus Christ. So Christian... Pursue this grace that God is freely giving you in Christ. And if you are not a Christian, it's all grace. Do you want to know why I'm saved? It has nothing to do with me. I was no better and no more deserving. It's not my Bible knowledge. It's not preaching ability. It's not pastoral wisdom. I'm a sinner who is saved by grace. And I don't know why, but God before eternity said, I am going to save that wretched fool, Neil Quinn. And I thank God for his grace. And that grace can be for you too. Just receive the Lord Jesus by faith. Pursue grace. Do not through willful neglect fail to obtain it. Don't leave space in your soul for the root of bitterness to grow. Because if it grows, you may one day become Esau. And you will lose everything. The poisonous fruit of your soul will kill you if it is unchecked because it will lead you away from the only true God. But the warning of Hebrews is you're not the only one who's in danger. Your life isn't the only life at stake. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, those whom you love or ought to love are also in danger and your poisonous fruit could defile them as well. So strive for peace and purity in yourself and in this way promote the peace and purity of the church. But let me simply close with a word of thanks. Because I fully recognize preaching through Hebrews has given you many hard-hitting, stern warnings. And I'm not going to skip them because this is a sign of God's love to us, that he would love us enough to warn us and protect us. But as I preach to you, I want you to know 
that I continue to feel for you as the author of Hebrews felt for his readers. When he said, after one of his stern warnings in chapter 6, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I love this church. It is one of the greatest privileges of my life to be the pastor of this church. And I do want to thank you for being a church that pursues the grace of God. Because in this way, you have loved and protected me and my wife and my little children. I thank God that my children are growing up here amongst you. I cannot tell you, women, how many times my wife has told me how much of an encouragement you are to her. Men, I don't know that you encourage her at all. But women of the church, you encourage my wife. Thank you. And so I simply exhort you, for your sake and for mine, keep pursuing the grace of Christ. This church is far from perfect, but by God's grace, we are still being perfected. Keep loving Christ, and in this way, keep loving and protecting one another. For when you watch over your life and your doctrine, it is not only for your good, it is for the good of everyone who is sitting next to you right now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the gift not only of Jesus Christ, but for the gift of his body who is the church. It's the popular thing to do now to just criticize churches all over. And there's many points that we can criticize your people, for we are a flawed, sinful people. But I thank you for the church of God, I, not only for Good Shepherd, but for all of the faithful churches out there who are proclaiming the gospel, who are standing true upon the word of God, who are loving and serving one another and reaching the lost, seeking and helping the poor and needy. Thank you. This is not a testament to our greatness. This is a testament to your grace. And so I simply ask for Good Shepherd, for all of the Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming churches in Kalamazoo and Michigan and the United States and in the world, that you would continue to watch over them and give them the grace to pursue your grace and thereby protect one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.